Pastor Dick. Doesn't Pastor Dick look great? Now, I, I asked him what was going on, and he said that he's getting down to his fighting weight. Now, I took that to mean he wants to fight me. So I started working out, and we're, we're looking forward to that Dude, soon. Thank you. I have a word for you. <laughs> Be careful. No. <clears throat> Good morning. It's great to be here and to see your smiling faces. I love baptismal services. There is something about that that is so profound. And you may have been following the Lord for a while and haven't done that yet, but that's part of the deal. I might just say that, that we're encouraged to follow that pattern. And so I just encourage you that way. This is, um, this is wrapping up the series that we are doing on Barnabas. And Pastor Derry, nine weeks ago now, because of missions, uh, we had an extra week in there, uh, started with this story. It was Christmas Eve, 1910. There was a conference of Salvation Army uh, participants in London. General, General William Booth, the founder of Salvation Army, um, was sick. He was an invalid now. His eyesight was almost gone. He was not going to be able to attend the conference And somebody suggested that he send a message, a telegram. They announced that the general would not be able to be there. People were disappointed. But then they read the telegram, and it was this, in one word, others. Signed, General William Booth. Others, whatever that means, it doesn't mean me. It means you. It means that I'm outward looking. And when you think of people in the New Testament or in the Bible, excuse me, who characterize that or symbolize that. It's hard to come across anyone stronger, if you will, than Barnabas in the New Testament. You know, Barnabas, you can read this in the book of Acts, but Barnabas connected with Saul, this, uh, this believer killer guy. Saul was, he'd come into places like this in that first century and take us out in chains and kill us or put us in prison or, you know, he was like a terrorist against it and it was in God's name. He thought he was doing God a favor. And so he'd come and take people like us away. And Stephen, the first person who died as a martyr, was as a result of Paul's hand, if you will. And so on the way to Damascus to get some more of us, if you will, God struck him down, bam, with a bolt of light, if you will. And it transformed him, literally blinded him for a few days, but changed him from the inside out and he became a follower of Jesus. Well, the people like us, the believers, thought this is a ploy. This guy is wanting to get in and mess things up. And so they didn't believe that he had changed. And Barnabas took his case to hand. He stood up for him and put his reputation on the line. He showed two things about himself, that he was ethical and that he was courageous in doing that. Later on, Barnabas pastored a church in Antioch and went and found Paul and said, why don't you come do this with me? And so they did that. They went on what was called Paul's missionary journey, and they went out through Turkey and met all these folks and started communities of believers and Jesus changed people's lives. And then last week you heard that they had this big sort of blow up in Antioch because these Gentile types, these non-Jewish people like me, I'm Scotch, Irish, Dutch, English, and German. I'm not a goyim. Goyim is the Hebrew word for, you know, other or the great unwashed or whatever. And and that's, well, I think maybe I've got a rabbi somewhere way back. But the the fact is that, that they found out that that Gentiles could follow Jesus too. And so Paul and Barnabas negotiated, if you will, this, this arrangement, this understanding. 
And now we come to the verses for this week. In Acts 15, 36, this is what it says. And after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are. This is in Turkey. This is the first missionary journey. So Paul says, let's go see the brothers. I mean, it's natural to want to reconnect. Point one on your bulletin, if you're taking notes, is relationships draw us back. Relationships draw us back. Places we've invested our lives, people with whom we've invested connections we've made, places where we've grown, those things draw us back. So we go on vacation sometimes and and we decide the where by who lives there. You know, sometimes you go see relatives or sometimes you don't. You know, it depends. But some years ago when I was president of a small college, we had four teenage kids. And we decided to take one last family trip before our eldest daughter graduated high school. And we said, where do you want to go in the United States? We'll take you anywhere. Now, we're living in Santa Cruz, California, which is a coastal surfing community, Monterey Bay. And, and our kids say, we want to go to East Central Illinois. Well, there's no surf in East Central Illinois. There's like corn and soybeans in East Central Illinois. And I said, why did you want to go? Well, our friends are there. And then we, I, I pushed the envelope. I said, well, we can't just go to Illinois. Let's go a little further. And so we decided to take several weeks and go down the East Coast to the United States. And we only stayed in a hotel two nights because we had friends. And we creatively mooched off of our friends. <laughs> you just call up and you say, we're going to be through your town. Would you like to have lunch? And they say, well, why don't you stay with us? They don't know we have four kids. They don't know that. So you're on the couches, you're in sleeping bags, you're on, and so like all these nights we stayed with friends. And of course, when the kids were small and we'd take trips like this, we had rules for in the car. It was back in the day. For for those of you who are younger, we drove a station wagon. That was a that was a car they used to have back then, and now it's Ford Expeditions and you know Explorers and stuff like that. But but we we had this perfect car in our mind that we would build and design someday. It had self-cleaning windows on the inside. It, it would have, you know, room for eight in the front seat because when the kids are small, they always want to be in the front seat. And of course, you had no seat belts then. And you do a lot of this, you know, trying to get them. And, and we were going to have a loop tape back in the day when you had tapes. Now it would be CD that it would just play stuff over and over again. Like, sit back and stay on your side of the line. We will be there when we get there. If you do that again, we're stopping the car. We thought it'd sell big. We never got to it. But the point is, you want to go with people with whom you're connected. It's like a bungee cord drawing you back. So for weddings or births or death. So on Tuesday this week, I'll be in Urbana, Illinois, Twin City Bible Church, for memorial service of a friend, Jim Miller, who died at 85 this past Wednesday night. Jim Miller used to run the design group for the architecture school at the University of Illinois, and his specialty was master planning campuses. And when we, started, when we started as president of this little college in California, I called Jim and said, would you come and redesign the campus? And he came out on his own nickel. We didn't pay him. He came out and stayed with us and started walking the campus. Because when you're a master planner, you've got to see the whole thing. You've got to check which way the wind is and where the sun's coming from at a certain hour. And he would go out and he'd walk the campus early in the morning, taking pictures when the sun was coming up in midday and in the evening when the sun was going down. He just walked the campus day after day. And I said, Jim, why are you doing that? Why don't you just, you know, take a few pictures and get her done? And he just said, when you walk the campus, 
When you walk on the ground, pretty soon it starts talking to you. And it says, put a building here. Put a building there. See, I, I didn't know that. I thought it was just dirt. I had no idea that it talked to you like that. And I want to go back and tell his adult children how much Jim impacted my life as a young 30-something college president at a time when I needed someone in my corner like he could be in my corner in that arena. The, the, the title for these thoughts this morning is Someone in Your Corner. And so you want to be with those that you invested in or they invested in you. And Paul's idea is great. In verse 37 it says, Now Barnabas wanted to take them with them. John called Mark. That's Barnabas's cousin. Now, he had gone with them on that first journey, and they got to Perga, which is this town up on the northern Mediterranean coast, and John Mark decided he needed to leave, and he went back, apparently, to Jerusalem. His mom had been uh, at the center of the early church movement in Jerusalem. We don't know why he left. We don't know why he went back, but he left. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them. John called Mark, but Paul thought best not to take with them one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. And there arose a sharp disagreement. We'll come back to that. So that they separated from each other. Barnabas took Mark with him, sailed away to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. I don't know what the conversation was that took place. This is just both imagining. Maybe they were just sitting around reflecting on their time together. And they were saying, Saul was saying, you know, I'll never forget the time, Barnabas, right when I first started out, where you come and stood for me, where you put your creds, your creds on the line, gave me street creds, if you will. You put your reputation on the line to stand up for me at the church in Jerusalem when they didn't trust me. And um, Barnabas was saying, well, you know, I could see in you just the grace of the Lord. He'd done this powerful thing. And then we got to do some stuff together and we took that first journey. And you remember, we went to all those towns and he said, man, when we got up there north of that area in Perga where they had bandits in the country, that was a little dicey. And then we got to that one town where they threw rocks at us and chased us out of town. I was going to say that they got stoned in that town, but you've got to change your language when you, when you, in this culture. So they, they had rocks thrown at them in that town. They chased him out of town and they went to the next town and there was a guy who was lame from birth. And Paul looked at him and said, stand up and walk. And the guy stood up and walked and the people went crazy. You can read this in the book of Acts. The people went nuts. So much so that they thought they were Greek gods. And you can see, you can see Barnabas saying, yeah, it was crazy. And Paul says, and they called you Barnabas. They called you Zeus. Well, Zeus, like, was the king of the gods. All the gods of Olympus were under Zeus. And Barnabas is saying, well, I... but they called you Hermes. That was the herald of the gods. You were the, you were the talker. You were the mouth, and you, you ran for the gods all the transportation, hospitality. And he said, remember, we had to wave them off because they were trying to make gods out of us. And everybody knows we're not gods. And so Paul says, so what do you think? Let's go see the brothers again. And Barnabas says, fantastic, let's do that. I'll... I'll send a note to John Mark. And Paul says, say what? <laughs> well, I thought we'd have my cousin go with us like he went the last time. And Paul says, yeah, but he only went like the first part. He didn't go where the bandits were and he didn't go where they threw rocks at us. And he, he didn't. So we're not doing that. And Barnabas says, well, I think we are. And Paul says, think again. And you can take it from there. But the point is that conflict happens 
where you have people. Where, where there are two people, conflict happens. Let me just say this, point two on your bulletin. This isn't my main point, but it is a point. Conflict in relationship is natural and neutral. Conflict is natural and neutral. It's not the fact that you have conflict, it's how you react to conflict that makes the difference. Every relationship has differences of opinion. If you're married and you ever built a house, you know this. Huge <coughs> discussions over the color of the kitchen, you know. And to you men, I just say, go get a burger and let her do what she wants. I just, you know. There are differences of opinion. There are op opposite feelings. There are different sets of ideas. There are unique perspectives. When I was in English class in high school, we used to conjugate verbs. That's a big thing for saying how you say the language. And here's a, here's a conjugated verb that fits me. I say, I am firm. You are stubborn. He, she, it is pig-headed. You know, that's kind of how that goes. But the fact is, how we respond to conflict sets the table for how we go forward. There's a fellow by the name of David Augsburger who wrote, he's a Mennonite brother, who wrote a book some years ago called Caring Enough to Confront. Because confrontation for many of us is a challenge. Some of us say, yeah, give me confrontation. That's what I'm built for. We'll win this sucker. But the fact is that how we respond to conflict is critical. And he lists five ways, and I'll just list them real quickly. I'll just list these five ways real quickly, see if you identify with any of them. The first way we often respond to conflict is, I'll get you. I'm right, you're wrong, there's going to be a winner here, and it's not going to be you. I won't ask for a show of hands, because I know all of us have been there. Been there, done that, got seven t-shirts, that's how it is, and we're just... The second way is, I'll give in. Some folks, when there's conflict, we say, you're right, I'm wrong, I'm always wrong. I'll just go over here and curl up in the fetal position and suck my thumb and eat a few worms over here in the corner because you're always right and I'm always wrong. Let me just, I'm dead serious. If you always accede in a relationship to the other person, if you always do that, you're not helping the relationship. There's not truth-telling going on there. The third way is I'll get out. I'll get out. I've told this before, but I love this story. I was in Cartagena, Columbia at a missions conference, and a missionary came and said, I was just in a church in Alabama just last week, and they were honoring a couple who had been married 75 years. Now, you've got to be real old, like to be married 75 years. So they brought this 90-something-year-old couple up, and they said to the guy, the pastor says, Sir, to what do you owe the longevity of this relationship? And he said, Well, me and Mom, when we were first married, we had this here agreement that if we ever got into it, into a fight or Christian discussion, whatever you call that, if we ever did that, and it got really hot, I'd just go out and sit on the porch until things cooled down. Then I'd go back in there and we'd talk her on out. He said, I guess this marriage has lasted this long because of all that great outdoor living. <laughs> I, lo I love that story. I tell that whenever I can, even if it's not making the point, I tell that story. But the fourth way is compromise. Sometimes we say, let's make this a win-win. It doesn't have to be a win-lose. Let's, let's find a common path and do that. The fifth and most biblical way, if you will, is affirm the person, confront the issue. Affirm the person, confront the issue. Remember the story in John 8 of a woman caught in the act of adultery, actually brought to Jesus. 
And the folks want to stone her. They want to throw rocks on her and kill her. And Jesus starts writing in the dirt. We don't know what he wrote. But by the time he was done, everybody was gone. And he stands there, and it doesn't say this, but in my mind, she's on the ground, and he picks her up, and he looks at her, and he says, so who condemns you? She looks around and says, nobody. And I see this smile spreading across Jesus' face, and he says, me neither. Go, and don't do that anymore. Or in Foth language, you are a great lady, and that's not the kind of things great ladies do. Firm the person, confront the issue. Don't skirt the issue, confront the issue. I tend to confront the person. I tend to say, who's the idiot who left the Diet Pepsi on the end table in the front room? It's making a circle on the table. I assassinate somebody's character for one calorie, right? <laughs> Affirm the person, confront the issue. And when you look at this, however, in this context, the word in the original language for this sharp disagreement is the word in the original from which we get paroxysm or spasm. It was this wrenching moment, this real confrontation. Paul and Barnabas aren't wimps. These are people who have toughed it out. They've stood shoulder to shoulder and taken on the enemy, if you will. So just because Barnabas is an encourager doesn't mean he's weak. I mean, he, he, he focuses his energies in particular ways, but these guys are tough guys. And so when they get into it, they really get into it, apparently. And this apparently is an issue that means they need to work apart. At least this is what they decided. They decided we're going to work apart. It didn't mean that they would be apart forever. Let me say that again. It meant they needed to work apart because this was a methodology. This was a how we get there. A lot of conflicts in organizations come and in families come because we agree on the common vision or the goal, but how we get there differs. And that's where the conflicts come a lot of times. This is one of those. Let's take John Mark. Let's not. And what happens here is that ultimately... At first they split and ultimately they're together. So, so Barnabas takes Mark and sails to Cyprus. Barnabas takes Mark and sails to Cyprus. So it'll, it'll show the first journey here. He goes down from Antioch to the big island of Cyprus. Paul, on the other hand, chooses Silas, another brother, and he goes north. He goes up into Turkey, Tarsus, Derby, Lystra, Iconium. This is where the guy was healed and they wanted to call him gods. He went that way. So what happens here, symbolically, Barnabas goes back to where they started their first missionary journey, and Paul goes to where they ended it, and they're working toward the middle from the ends. Years later, there's a sense of reconciliation, but somebody asked the question, how can this happen with men of God? If people are all following Jesus, how can you have differences like that? Well, we have different approaches sometimes. Or we have personal foibles. Or we're going through tough seasons. Just because you follow Jesus doesn't mean you're God. Obviously it doesn't. There's only one of those. And it doesn't mean you always get it right. The challenge is that if you follow Jesus over time, it can work out if we want it to. If we don't want it to work out, then things won't work out. But if our heart, he wants things to work out. His whole point is reconciliation, if you will. So years later, apparently, they still have relationship. In, when he's writing to the church at Colossae from prison, this is what Paul writes. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. And Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, 
concern, parentheses, concerning whom you received instructions, if he comes to you, welcome him. So here is Paul now speaking on behalf, standing up for Mark. Excuse me, yes, Paul standing up for Mark years later. Or writing to his spiritual son Timothy in 2 Timothy 4. Paul says, Luke alone is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he's very useful to me for ministry. Very useful. Before he wasn't useful. Got no use for him. I don't want him in the way. He wimps out or whatever he was thinking. And now he's useful. But at the point of contention in Antioch, Barnabas stands up for Mark. When he's going eyeball to eyeball with the great apostle Paul, Barnabas stands up for, Bar- for, for Mark like he had for Paul many years before. Interestingly enough, Mark goes off later to work with Peter and later writes the Gospel of Mark. So when you read the New Testament and you read Paul's letters, over here, I guess it would be over here if you're coming this way, you've got to go through Mark to get to Paul. I just think God has a great sense of humor. I just, you know. Point three, nothing fuels relationship like a person standing up for us. Nothing fuels relationship like a person standing up for us. This is March Madness. March Madness is basketball, college, NCAA, Division I, men's and women's basketball. They start with 64 teams, narrow it down to four, and they fight it out in the final four, and finally you have one that's king of the hill. The most popular sports today in the United States are NFL football by a large margin, Major League Baseball, and college hoops. Back in the 30s, the most popular sports in this country were Major League Baseball by a large margin, horse racing, and boxing. If you were a boxer, you had a guy who helped you. He was called your corner man, literally in your corner. Literally the one that when you got whacked really hard in the third round and your nose was bloodied and your eye was swollen, you'd go sit down and he'd wash your face off and put Vaseline on you and give you a little of this and say, buddy, you can do it. Just stay away from his left. Don't, let, don't get near the left because he'll take you out if you get near the left. That was the corner man. He was the encourager. He was the trainer. He was the healer. He was the one who worked with you. Nothing fuels relationship like a person standing up for us. And in our darkest hours, we need someone in our corner. In our corner, in our most glorious moments, we want someone in our corner. Somebody to advocate. Barnabas is that person. He's that strong encourager. He's that faithful advocate. Advocate means to speak on behalf of someone. Martin Niemöller was a Protestant, very... Um, well-known Protestant pastor in Germany in the 1930s. He emerged as an outspoken foe of Hitler, Adolf Hitler, in Nazi Germany. And because of that, the last seven years of Hitler's rule in Germany, Martin Niemöller spent in concentration camps. When he got out, they interviewed him and said, how could that happen? And this is what he said. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. Barnabas was an advocate for Saul, the persecutor of believers, the intimidator, 
And maybe in this confrontation with, with, uh, with Paul, Paul forgot. Maybe, maybe it just didn't come to him that that was going on. But the fact is that when somebody stands and speaks for you, when you have someone in your corner, that's one of the most powerful moments in the world. Where either you've done something wrong and someone speaks in your behalf, or you don't have enough credentials and somebody speaks in your behalf, or you're going to a new place and someone speaks in your behalf. Having someone speak on your behalf as an advocate is one of the most profound things in the world. And here's the good news. You've heard it before if you've been in this congregation. The good news is this. God is our advocate. In Jesus, He comes not only to give us a corner man, but to get somebody in the ring with us. And Jesus, when He leaves, says this to His disciples, I'm going to send to you another one of the same kind. There are two phrases in the original language for another in the Greek language in the New Testament. One means another of the same kind, and one means another of a different kind. Jesus says to His disciples, I'm going to go away but I'm going to send another of the same kind. It will be the Holy Spirit. And He just won't walk around with you. He'll be in you. So wherever you go, go to China. He'll be there. Go to the darkest places. He'll be with you. Go to the mountaintop. He'll be with you. And He is the paraclete, the one who speaks on your behalf. He's your defense counsel, if you will. And Paul picks up this theme, interestingly enough, in Romans, the 8th chapter. Many of you know these verses. Romans 8.31 says this, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elective? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us as we speak. He's speaking on our behalf. Wherever heaven is, wherever the Father is, as we speak, he's saying, help, help the bald guy who's talking. Help, help the people who are listening. This is the God who speaks on our behalf. A lady came to my office years ago when I pastored at the University of Illinois, and she walked in and said, I've, I've had worse than a blue Monday. This is a blue month. It's been a terrible season, and I feel just like nothing. I feel like nobody's for me, got nothing going. And I said, well... And I just had this thought, and I went to this text, and I said, wherever there's a personal pronoun, why don't you put your name there? And I want you to stand in front of the mirror and read this text out loud, morning and evening, and let's see how that goes. And it went well. Because I said, you, you get to believe either your feelings, or you get to believe truth. Let's see which direction you want to go. This is how I would read just in part if it were my name. What then shall Foth say to these things? If God is for Richard Bruce Foth, who can be against Dick? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for Dick Foth, how will he not also with him graciously give Foth all things? Well, you know, you read that a couple of times a day, you're going to start thinking, maybe he's for me. Maybe he's in my corner. This is the advocate, the ultimate, he is in our corner person. I close with this story. Some of you have heard it before. And I'm going to tell it again because I don't care. It perfectly captures for me this idea. When I was a graduate student at Wheaton College, I did a, a memorial service for a person, and the lead pastor told this story about himself. He said, I grew up in a very conservative home with a dad who worked all the time and was very conservative, dressed always in a navy blue suit with a regimental tie, one of those striped ties. 
He said, I was a baseball player in high school, and I, um, my dad would never come to any of my games. And I desperately wanted him to come to the league championship. We were paying, playing for the championship. And I went to him and asked him, but he was noncommittal. He wouldn't say. He said, I walked out onto the ball field that spring day, that spring afternoon, and I looked up in the stands, and here were all these people in pastel colors and summer clothing. And there, in the middle of the stands, was my father in a navy blue suit and a regimental tie. And he said, I loved it. We played our hearts out, but we got to the bottom of the ninth inning. These guys were tough. They were ahead of us four runs to one. It was the bottom of the ninth. The bases were loaded. There were two outs, and I was at bat. If I could get a home run, we could win this sucker. And he said, I walked up to the, to the plate, bounced the bat like baseball players do, got ready. And he said, the pitcher wouldn't put, put one right down the pipe. And I swung and missed. I backed out and knocked out the dirt of my cleats and spit in my hands, do all the stuff baseball players do. Got back in. Did that again. Another strike. Backed out. Three more times I backed out. Three balls. It was a full count. Two strikes. Three balls. If, if I swung this time, it was out. Unless I hit, I got up to the plate and I banged the plate and under my breath I said, God, if you are there, this is the time. <laughs> so that guy wound up, put one right down the middle and I nailed it to center field and I raced for first base. As I came around first, the first guy scored. I come screaming into second base. Everybody's shouting at the top of their lungs. I'm going as fast as I can and the second guy scores. I'm coming around second. The ball's coming in from the outfield and I'm going as fast as I can and all of a sudden, I hear my dad, and he's on his feet, and he's shouting, It's okay, son, you're going to make it. Come on home. He said, I raced around third base, slid in under the tag, and we won the game, and I didn't care. All I could hear was my dad shouting that encouragement, cheering me on the top of my, his lungs, saying, It's okay, son, you're going to make it. Come on home. My dad was in my corner. And I believe the God of all the universe this morning stands and shouts across the galaxies. It's okay, kids. You're going to make it. Come on home. Would you bow your heads and your hearts with me this morning? Just in the quiet of this moment. I just want to ask this question. I asked it last night and I asked it again this morning. And there were folks who said, yeah, I want to. You say, I've never heard the invitation to follow Jesus exactly like that, or I've heard it, but I've never responded. And this morning, I feel a tugging in my heart. That's, that's called the Holy Spirit. That's not just emotion. It's the Holy Spirit, I believe. And you say, I need that God, the only one there is, in my corner. I need Him to take away my stuff to scrub my hard disk of my history, if you will. I need healing in my spirit. I need a fresh tomorrow. And I want to be like one of those guys in those towns that Paul and Barnabas went to. I want to start following Jesus. I'm a little scared. I don't know what that means. But I'm willing to indicate that I want to start that journey. And just in the quiet of this moment, from my far right, your far left coming across the auditorium. If you'd like me to include you in a closing prayer, I won't ask anything of you more than that. Just, just lift your hand up and let me include you in a closing prayer. You say, I'd like to start. Yes, I see your hand. Yes, I see your hand. You just raise it up. Raise it high. Coming over toward the center aisle. Just raise it up and say, please and yes, sir. I see you. Just 
raise it up and put it down. Coming across the center aisle toward your right, you'll raise your hand and say, yes, I see you, son. Just raise it up and put it down. Coming, yes, I see you. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, I see you. You can put your hand down. Father, you've seen these hands, but more than that, you see our hearts. You know the intent. You know where a person is in their lives. And even as I pray, help them to pray. Lord Jesus, I trust you this morning with my life going forward. I pray that you will take my history and scrub it clean. You said you don't forget. Help me to forget. But give me a fresh beginning, a new birth. Transform me from the inside out. May it be like a baptism being raised from the dead. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for these dear friends who have symbolized taking an act of faith by raising a hand this morning. We pray your blessing upon them in these days. We ask these things in the precious name of Jesus, who is the Christ. And everyone said, Amen. Don't you love that? last service I could sing that song all day for those of you who slipped up a hand as an act of faith some of you saying I don't know what am I getting into here it's the first step on this journey following Jesus and as the second step if you want it there's a packet of materials just sort of a starter kit up here on the sides of the platform and back there at guest services and on your way out if you just like to pick one of those up give you something to read and we can connect with you if you want to so that somebody can walk with you in this process. It's an important thing. Last night was very cool. i got to tell you this. I'm standing down here in the front afterwards and a young girl, probably nine, walked up, beautiful young girl, and said, uh, where are those packets? I want one of those packets. When you start following Jesus when you're a kid, it saves a lot of pain. Doesn't You can't skirt all pain in life, but there's something that happens when that gets into your soul when you're nine years old. And uh, anyway, I'll, I'll start a whole other message if I go there. So, some of you... I can't remember if I said this in this service or the last one, but you might want to go to the website. There's a chant where it says, share your story. Just put your story in there. Put a testimony of something God's done in your life to encourage other people. Our prayer team is coming. They're going to be here at the front. These are people who at this moment in time will stand in your corner. These are people who will talk to God on your, on your behalf with you. So if you have a particular need this morning, please feel free to come and be with them just for a little bit. Now for the benediction. As you go, I pray for you this morning, this week, that there will be somebody for whom you can stand in their corner this week. That you can come and take their part, if you will. And wherever you are this week, remember you are not an accident because Jesus is with you wherever you are. And he will use you for his purposes. So go go in his grace. 
the service begins now. God bless you.